Good morning. My name is Chad Ashby. I'm a member here at Christ the Redeemer. And it is a privilege to begin our series this summer together through the pastoral epistles. So if you'd like, you can go ahead and prepare by turning to 1 Timothy chapter 1. This past week was the annual convening of the Southern Baptist Convention which is an annual gathering of churches who, like us, submit to a confessional document we call the Baptist Faith and Message, and secondly, desire to cooperate together for the purpose of ministry and mission. Anyone here attended a convention before? Okay, okay. Well, Luke, you can attest to this. Um, You don't really realize how wide the Southern Baptist umbrella is until you attend a convention. Uh, And then you realize that there are some interesting uh, brothers and sisters in our denomination. (laughs) That not all churches uh, worship and do ministry exactly like us. Traditionally, that's kind of been the blessing and the curse of being a Baptist. As Baptists, we are free to worship according to our conscience in accordance with God's word. However... As Baptists, sometimes we can fall into thinking that this just gives us a pass to do whatever we want when we gather together. Prayer books, optional. Psalters, optional. Restrictive denominational orders of worship, optional. Throw out all the high church, bishoprics, dioceses, presbyteries. Baptists don't have popes. Baptists vote. Well, I'm grateful that Christ the Redeemer Church does belong to a confessional denomination because it holds us accountable to brothers and sisters outside of this church for what's going on inside of this church, both in our pulpit and our practice, in our life and in our doctrine. It's a very practical reminder of a cosmic reality, which is this. We are not in charge of what happens here. Matthew 18, 20 reads, For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. And usually we read this as sort of a comforting sort of verse, and it ought to be, but it also should inspire a healthy level of reverence and awe and fear. Jesus is not here just to give us the warm fuzzies. Jesus is here. Presumably we have more than two or three believers gathered this morning to rule. The one from whose mouth proceeds a double-edged sword with blazing eyes and garments radiant like lightning comes down to preside by his spirit over this congregation, this gathering of heavenly citizens. He condescends to come down to receive our praise, to sing among us, to administer his word and his grace to us by his spirit. But make no mistake, he is in charge of what takes place among us this morning. In fact, to call ourselves the church of Jesus Christ and then to proceed Sunday after Sunday to go about and do whatever seems right in our own eyes 
is to really to invite a special kind of wrath upon ourselves because to teach false doctrine and practice and promote sin in the name of Muhammad or in the name of a political party or in the name of some corporation, that's one thing. To teach false doctrine and practice and promote sin in the name of Jesus Christ is to besmirch the character of the crucified and risen king of the universe. And he is jealous for the honor of his name and the justice and righteousness of his kingdom. We should not fool ourselves into thinking that he will long abide men and women gathering in his name to perpetuate heterodoxy, lawlessness, disorder, anarchy, sexual libertinism, greed, lies, abuse, deceit, and violence. Brothers and sisters, it is a privilege to belong to King Jesus. And it's also a responsibility for us as citizens of his kingdom to align our worship, our body, our gatherings, in short, our church, in accordance to the command and authority of God, our Savior. But he gives more grace. Just as God has not left us clueless as to how to be saved, but has sent his son Jesus to make salvation known, so now King Jesus has not left us clueless as to his will when we gather as a church. But he's given us instructions through Paul to Timothy and to Titus, these pastoral epistles that we're going to be studying together this summer. First Timothy, second Timothy, and the letter to Titus. These provide basic instructions from God our Savior through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for how we, as followers of Jesus, can honor King Jesus when we gather together. Who's qualified to lead his pastors? Who's qualified to serve as deacons? What should we do when we get together? Pray? Play dominoes? Have a pool party? Watch football? Preach? Compare recipes? Do churches even have to gather in person? What sort of people should we support financially? What do we do with false teachers? What if a pastor falls into sin? How should we dress when we come to church? Jesus actually cares about these things and has given us instructions in these pastoral epistles. The good news is, brothers and sisters, he wants us to please him. He wants to be pleased with us. And he's given us instructions, these letters, so that we can abide by the basic doctrines that we need for life and godliness. But inside of these parameters, brothers and sisters, there is great freedom and liberty and joy in the spirit. As Americans, we often think of things like lines and rules and restrictions as limits on our freedom. But that's really not true. Our family has been watching the NBA playoffs, which just came to a, according to my children, tragic finish. This past week. Imagine if the uh, players of the NBA had that attitude. 
Rules, lines, restrictions mean less freedom. Take away the hoops, take away the ball, the lines on the court, the jerseys, the referees, the rules. We want to have real freedom so that we can play the game of basketball. You have no basketball to play if you don't have a ball and some hoops and lines and jerseys to show who's playing on which team and rules to regulate what is and isn't allowed. We wouldn't have the beauty of the game of basketball without rules and regulations. And so it is in the church. We would not have the beauty of the church without rules and regulations. Because those parameters discipline us, sanctify us, make us holy and suitable for good works and set us apart as a bride for King Jesus. They come to us, to quote from the opening of Paul's letter to Timothy, as grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So with open and willing hearts, why don't we turn together to the first of the pastoral epistles this morning, the book of 1 Timothy, where we're going to be devoting our time together this morning to the first 11 verses. Why don't we listen as I read, beginning in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless, and disobedient for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. As Paul begins his letter to Timothy, he's going to remind us this morning of three very simple, very basic truths. First, the gospel is God's. The gospel is God's. Secondly, the aim is love. And thirdly, the law is good. Let's look at each of these for a few minutes together. First, The first point is actually pervasive throughout this entire passage. Uh, Let's start in verses 1 through 4. We're thinking about this truth. The gospel is God's. Let me read to you verses 1 and 2 again. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, 
by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our Lord, our, our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So what we have here is this sort of chain of command. And it goes like this. The gospel begins with the command of God. Revealed in Christ, sent through Paul, written to Timothy, then finally delivered to us. You see the links in the chain. And it all begins with the owner of the gospel, the one who gave it by divine decree, God. The gospel is God's. Paul became an apostle of this gospel, not by own, his own choice or by his free will, but by the command of God. In verse 4, Paul refers to the gospel and he calls it a stewardship from God. It belongs to him. Finally, in verse 11, Paul says that everything we do should be in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So the gospel is a stewardship. It's something that is entrusted. It comes by the authorization, at the command, by the supreme will of God, because the gospel is God's. And God, in his divine wisdom, has not chosen to give the gospel to each of us unmediated. He didn't appear to us individually in a dream and say, let me give you the gospel. It's never been given to anyone like this before, but I'm going to give it to you individually, and then you in a dream, and you in a dream. No. The command of God has come to us through his son, Jesus Christ. And then the son after his death and resurrection, has appointed apostles as his chosen witnesses to spread throughout the world, telling people about his death and resurrection. And we as Christians receive that witness right here. And we're told that from the very first days of the early church, they were devoting themselves primarily and firstly to what? The apostles' teaching. So submission to the apostles' teaching is submission to God himself because the gospel doesn't belong to the apostles. It belongs to God. To receive Paul's admonition is to hope in Christ because the good news of Christ's eternal victory doesn't belong to Paul. It belongs to God. To heed Timothy's warning to abandon worldly speculations and remain devoted to the stewardship in the faith, is to heed the Spirit's warning because the gospel stewardship is not Timothy's. It belongs to God. My family and I live in a rental home. So what that means is the house and really the property at 5 Greensbury Drive doesn't belong to us. It has been entrusted to us for a period we are stewards. We are not the owners. So what that means is just because we want a back deck on the house doesn't mean we can go blow out the back of the house and add a deck. We can't knock down walls because we want a better line of sight from the kitchen to the living room. We can't even change the color of the wall paint to suit our preferences. In fact, if we put too many holes in the wall, we will get in big trouble. 
Because the house does not belong to us, we are not the owners, we are the stewards. The house belongs to the owner. And this is why the departure of false teachers is so serious. The gospel does not belong to the church, certainly does not belong to me. It was entrusted to us as a stewardship from its owner, namely God. So no church is at liberty to put a back deck onto the gospel just because it suits their liking. I have no authority this morning to just paint a different color over the gospel because it's going to be more palatable to me or to you this morning. By the command of God, through the mediation of Jesus Christ, the spiritual apostleship of Paul and the charge of Timothy, the owner of the gospel says to any one of us who might be tempted, do not teach a different doctrine. You are not at liberty as long as you gather in my name to devote yourselves to speculations instead of the stewardship. The good news of the death and resurrection of Jesus is not your possession to meddle with. The gospel is God's. In verse 4, Paul warns against one particular temptation. He says that preachers and teachers in the church are not to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. So Paul is setting the gospel in contrast to myths and endless endless genealogies. In fact, uh, Paul will specifically target myths throughout the pastoral epistles over and over again as something that for some reason teachers in the church in his day and apparently continuing would be tempted to spend time on we read it here in 1 Timothy 1.4, then again at the end of the letter, 4.7, then in 2 Timothy 4.4, 4, and then in Titus 1.14. He keeps targeting myths particularly. Why? Myths are just folk tales about gods and goddesses and heroes, symbolic stories about the existence of things and certain moralities and the meaning of life and how things came to be, why would these myths become such a dangerous attraction to would-be teachers in the church? I think it comes down to ownership. See, myths were familiar to everyone, but belonged to no one. There is no authoritative edition of Prometheus's theft of fire or King Midas or any other host of myths. In fact, the mythological tradition enshrines many inconsistent, contrasting accounts of these various stories. So when a poet and his audience would get together and he would begin or she would begin to retell some particular myth, they all knew the story by heart. The delight was in how the poet would make the story his own. What little twist would he put on it this time to make his telling of it stand out? 
Well, brothers and sisters, we do not gather every Sunday morning to hear a fresh spin on the myth of the cross. I don't have any clever speculations or new alternative doctrines to add to the folktale of Jesus Christ. I am here and every preacher who fills this pulpit ought to be here to deliver to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. We have not gathered to toss around myths and endless genealogies. We have not come to speculate about meaningless things. Christ Jesus is not a myth belonging to no one and anyone. He is the gospel, and the gospel is God's. Myth-making is incongruent with the gospel as well because the purpose of telling myths is really to exalt self, while the purpose of preaching is to exalt Jesus Christ. Look at verse 6 and 7. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Can you see the connection in verses 6 and 7? The departure from the gospel is tied to a desire in the heart of the one teaching. The swerve in the teaching indicates a swerving of the heart. The chief and the goal, the telos, the aim for false teachers is self-promotion. But what is the chief end, the goal, the telos, the aim for gospel teachers? Back up to verse 5. The aim of our charge is love. Love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. This is our second point this morning. The aim is love. I know there are several men in this room who can attest to this. The temptation for preachers is to use this place as a place to demonstrate our self-worth. For myself, a former pastor of nine years, the temptation this entire week was to try to cobble together some semblance of words that will make people think, you know what? He's still got it. He can preach well. You know what? He deserves his own pulpit. The aim of our charge is love. Is that me this morning? The aim, the purpose of this preaching moment is love. The end of love is lifting up God and neighbor. But is my end really to lift up myself? 
There is a grasping even from pulpits for petty influence, for popularity, for recognition, for being rhetorically gifted or emotional, for being known for emotional delivery. In short, saying, I want to be known. But love says, I want God to be known and I want you to know your God. Self-love sets the gospel aside quickly to enter into vain words. Love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith sets self aside. False teachers will not long abide the gospel because the gospel quickly does away with the preacher. The gospel says, this man isn't anything. This preacher has nothing unique or new to say this morning. Pay no attention to this man. He has been charged to preach to you the same two words you have heard every time you have heard the preaching of the gospel, Christ and him crucified. He is here under strict orders to deliver these twin commands, repent and believe. Think nothing of this man. Think everything of Christ Jesus, the crucified and risen king, and give praise and honor to God, our Savior. That's what the gospel says. The aim of the gospel preacher is love because the aim of the gospel is love. The aim of the cross is love. His aim, now and forevermore, is love. This is the probing question that undoes every false teacher, undoes every unclean heart, every evil conscience, every insincerity. It's this question, what is my aim? What is my aim? Even in confronting false teachers and here strictly charging against heterodox teaching in the church, Paul says, even in that, the aim of his charge is love. What is our aim? When we talk about aim, we're talking about our end goal, the chief purpose. What are we hoping hoping to arrive at What are we wanting to achieve when we reach the finish line? So many churches get involved in all kinds of programs and activities and ministries without ever pausing to even ask this question, what is our aim? Is it church growth? Is it political power, financial stability, influence in our community, a comfortable worship style? What? is it that we're even aiming at here? Aim matters. Theologian J. Cole once quipped, the good news is, homie, you came a long way. The bad news is, homie, you went the wrong way. Aim matters. What's the point of being able to hit a golf ball 400 yards if you can't hit the fairway? This is why I don't golf. (laughs) Aim matters. What is our aim? Paul says there is only one aim that will do for the Christian. The aim is love. Love of God and love of our neighbor. Think personally how often throughout the week 
when you're thinking, when you're talking, when you're acting, do you just pause for a minute and ask yourself, what is my aim here? If I accomplish exactly what I'm setting out to do, what will I achieve? In my career decisions, in my tweeting, in my posting, in my parenting, in my discussions at work, in my church attendance and participation, what exactly am I aiming at here? You see, you can't really judge the goodness or the badness of any particular action until you get at the heart behind it. You can wield a knife either to kill or to heal. The intention, the aim behind the action determines whether what's being done is good or evil. What is your aim? Is it murder or is it surgery? The aim of a knife wielded to murder is hate of neighbor. The aim of a knife wielded to heal is love of neighbor. What is my aim? This question probes us in a way that makes us feel uncomfortable because it reaches below the surface of our actions and our words and our tweets and our IGs beneath our church programs and our orders of worship, and it asks us, why? Why are you doing that? Does it spring from a pure heart? Do you have a good conscience in what you're doing? Is it a demonstration of the sincerity of your faith? Which is why we like the law and why we like teachers of the law rather than teachers of the gospel because we don't want to probe our hearts. We just want to be told what to do and what not to do. If you have all the rules and you just keep all of the rules, then you don't have to examine your hearts and you don't have to even address or ask the question why. But if the law really does shield us from self-examination, if the law really is a refuge for those with impure hearts, evil consciences, and insincere faith, if the law really is a place of hiding for those kinds of people, then the law itself must be evil. But brothers and sisters, we know that's not true. And Paul reminds us of that in verse 8. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Friends, the law is not evil. And this is our third point this morning. The law is good. The law is good. It doesn't shield us from our sin. The law's purpose, its aim, is actually to show us our sin. These self-titled teachers of the law love to go in circles analyzing the law. But the lawful use of the law is not to analyze the law, but to allow the law to analyze us. The law is good. But there are, as Paul indicates here, unlawful ways to use the law. We can use the law to justify in our own minds, not loving God and not loving our neighbor. We can use the law to promote glory to self rather than glory to God. False teachers teach the law 
strangely, in order to enable sin. True teachers of the law teach the law in order to reveal it. False teachers use the law to cover over a sinful heart. True teachers of the law use the law to uncover the sins of the heart. Paul does a masterful job here in verses 9 and 10 of actually, in short form, putting on display what this lawful use of the law actually looks like. He takes each of the Ten Commandments, one by one, and he presses them into the heart. Let's look at it together. Follow along with me in verse 9. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. Commandment 1, you shall have no other gods before me. Ah, but I don't worship pagan gods. I must be good. Yes, but the first commandment confronts your lawless, disobedient heart that wants to be in charge of your life and not submit to the authority of the Lord. For the ungodly and sinners, literally Paul writes, the impious and iniquitous. Commandment two, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. Ah, but I don't worship idols. The second commandment confronts a heart that wants to worship God improperly, impiously, in short, according to my personal preferences, rather than according to how God says I ought to worship him. In fact, it's the second commandment that reminds us that that kind of iniquity springs from a a heart that hates God. For the unholy, well, the third commandment reads, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. It is the unholiness of our hearts that then pours forth with unconsecrated speech. And profane, the fourth commandment reads, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Our hearts resist the boundaries between the holy and profane and our tendency whenever God draws a line and says, keep this holy. Our hearts always want to step over, don't they? For those who strike their fathers and mothers, the fifth commandment reads, honor your father and mother. For murderers, the sixth, you shall not murder. The sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality, the seventh reads, you shall not commit adultery. You see, our hearts not only desire to break our marriage covenants, but even more significantly to break the covenant with our maker and to join in adultery with the world in its debauchery and stream of sexual immorality, lust, and unnatural sexual pleasures. Enslavers, literally man-stealers, the eighth commandment, you shall not steal. Confronting hearts that treat their neighbors as things to be looted, abused, owned, and possessed. Liars, perjurers, the ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness. Our hearts can get so twisted up that we can convince ourselves that we actually know the best way to keep God's law better than he does. Sometimes the best way to keep the law is by bending the law. And so perjure ourselves before the heavenly judge. And whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, the 10th commandment, you shall not covet. And it's with this 10th commandment that Paul ties a bow on this whole thing and wraps it all back up, putting a final nail in the coffin of these false teachers because the 10th commandment reveals the true aim or purpose 
behind those who teach contrary to sound doctrine, and it's this, jealousy. Those who teach the law unlawfully are guilty of coveting the glory and power and authority that belongs to God alone. You see, the law is not the problem. The law is good. The problem is when we let our hearts become little teachers of the law. Because our little wicked hearts with their wicked aims use the law unlawfully. The law is good. In fact, Paul wraps up this whole passage by saying in verse 11 that the law is, verse 11, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. The law is good because the law perfectly accords with the gospel. And so our measure of law teaching should be how well it points us to the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. The law was never meant to cover over our sin. That's the gospel's job. The law is meant to reveal the depths of our hearts. And then the gospel is meant to cover over that sin with the blood of Jesus. You know, when the chief priests and the teachers of the law in Jesus' day gathered together to take counsel on how they could do away with Jesus... They believed that they had managed and cobbled together a way to do it that would not break the law. They hired false witnesses so that they themselves would not have to lie. They delivered Jesus over to the Romans and then incited them to put Jesus to death so that they could not be charged with committing murder. They had the dead body of Christ taken down from the cross before the end of the day. Why? so that they couldn't be guilty of profaning the Sabbath. In fact, weren't they right? In fact, weren't they justified to condemn to death a man who broke the first and second commandments, the Jesus who said before Abraham was, I am. The Jesus who claimed to be the Son of God, the image of the invisible God. Yes, yes, they were right and justified in everything they had done. And do you know, they perfectly achieved their final aim. But these teachers of the law had blinded their own eyes to one commandment, in fact, the first and greatest of them. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, and the second, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. What is your aim? When you finally finish your life's work, I wonder, what will you achieve? Will you arrive before God with the blood of Jesus on your hands or on your heart? Friends, the gospel belongs to God our Savior, and the law is good. And the aim in all God has done for us in Christ Jesus is love. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that by your spirit you would come down and reign among us. We pray that this summer our time in the pastoral epistles would bless this congregation 
of heavenly citizens. Lord Jesus, protect us from false teaching. Protect the men who preach from this pulpit in their mouths, their hearts, that everything we do and say that our charge would be love. God, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the law. We know that all these things are good and for our good. And it's in Jesus' name and in his love we trust and pray.